if you're looking for them. So let's come and hear God's word. We're going to read, first of all, from the Gospel of Luke, very familiar words of the angel coming at that time of Annunciation, these words. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings. You are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Lord, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Amen. And then we're going to read from the book of Isaiah. We've been working through Isaiah. This is the last reading we're going to do from Isaiah, right from the end of the book, from the 65th chapter. No, we haven't done every single chapter as we've gone through. We've been here for quite a while. But here we are at the end. And the end of Isaiah, we've been seeing that Isaiah maps the gospel in telling the bad news of a broken world, the good news of a savior, a messiah on the line of David, a shoot from the branch of Jesse that is coming. And it ends almost like the book of Revelation does with promising a new heaven and a new earth. So let's hear these promises from Isaiah chapter 65. The Lord says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought like a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plants and others eat. For as in the days of a tree, so will the days of my people. My chosen ones will, enjoy, will, will long enjoy the work of their hands. 
They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune, for they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. Amen. It's amazing how quickly a year goes. We're back at Christmas already. And I was being reminded um, that this time last year, we were sitting as a family on tender hooks because Rebecca was in France on her own and she had COVID and we didn't know whether she would be able to travel to get home for Christmas. And there was something even now as I, I think about those days where we wondered about it that was almost heartbreaking. That notion is very powerful, isn't it? About coming home for Christmas. That song, is it Chris Rea? Driving home for Christmas. Oh, is already playing in my head. There you are, you've got an earworm. Um, in Isaiah's day, Israel would have got that sentiment. Because they'd spent an awful long time wanting to go home. They'd been taken into exile in Babylon, their city destroyed, and they were now living in a strange land, a strange people with strange gods, even stranger than France. Although we're not to talk ill of France today, are we? Or is it the other way around? Yeah. But all that Isaiah's people, the Jewish people would have wanted as they were in that place was to go home, to go home to Jerusalem. They yearned for days and days to be in their own place. You know, something of that nostalgia, that desire for that safe place of our memories is very strong at Christmas time, isn't it? Christmas and nostalgia almost go together. All the songs that we sing, the ones that we know very well, take us back to a time we sang them before. The songs that are on the radio very often, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas or chestnuts rich roasting by an open fire, they're taking us back to times of yore and to times in the past. And most of us, as we come to think about Christmas, can't disconnect Christmas from memory. The memories of our own childhoods, the memories of what we did in days of old. And there is a sense, if those times were good for you, and they're not good for all folk, but if they were good for you, there's a sort of hankering to get back there. And very often, parents are trying to recreate with their own children what they remember from their own childhood, singing and singing time and time again. Well, to end the story where you were on tenderhooks, Rebecca did get home last Christmas. Uh, and this Christmas, she's not very far away at all. But that, too, is something Israel would have known about because by the time we get to the last chapters of Isaiah written, Hundreds of years after the first ones, almost said, said, certainly, things have changed. The Persian Empire has destroyed the Babylonian Empire, and the Jews were told by the Persians they could go back to Jerusalem. And they had done. They'd gone home. The problem was when they got home, 
it wasn't what they'd hoped for. They'd rebuilt the ruins of the temple in Jerusalem. And when they'd eventually finished it, we can read this in the book of Haggai, they no sooner finished it than the old folk took one look at it and said, it's no as good as the one we remember that Solomon built. You know that sentiment as well? You think you've done something and folks say, oh, it was better in the old days. And so that was there right away as well. And as they were in Jerusalem with their temple, they looked around and they could see the ruins of the city walls. And they could look and they could see the palace where David and Solomon had once reigned and realized they didn't have a king anymore. The line, the stump seemed to be broken. And it wasn't just that. If you read the book of Nehemiah, you find that it wasn't just that. They had gone back with this project to rebuild and they thought they were all in it together. But when they got back, they'd found that the lords and the ladies of wealth were looking out for themselves and lining their own pockets while the poor struggled with the price and the cost of living. Not that that happens today. Some things don't change. My point, a yearning for home, but when you got there, a sense of disappointment. And we know that too, don't we? As I thought back to last Christmas, and it's easy to forget that just last Christmas we went into a lockdown just as we came out of Christmas. And I was remembering how in those lockdown days of pandemic, we thought, well, if only we could get back to normality. Remember that? Well, here we are in normality. Cost of living crisis strikes, inflation, we can't keep a PM for 10 minutes and nothing seems to be working. Like the Israelites going home and then finding it wasn't the magic that they thought it was. And before you think that's just broken Britain, we could talk about Ukraine, we could talk about Putin, we could talk about the fact that the vice president of Argentina has just been arrested and put in jail for corruption. It's the world over, isn't it? The sense that things just don't work the way they're supposed to be. Israel knew it as well. Got home, but when you got home, it never seemed to work, and they started to blame God. Why had God let this happen? And that's the background to the chapter from Isaiah that opens with these simple words, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. See, I will create new heaven and a new earth. Now, here the word new is important because that word new can actually mean two different things. It can mean new as in different. A couple of years ago, I got a new car. It was 10 years old. Does that make sense? In one sense, it wasn't a new car, but it was a new car because I changed my car. But that's not what the new heavens and the new earth means. It doesn't just mean a different. The image is much more going into a show home. You know when you go into a show home and, and everything's just pristine. It's all clean. There's nothing that's got shabby bits about it. There's no bumps and dust. And when you open the cupboard, there's not full of junk. It's all just as it should be. And you think, I could live like that. And then you put all your junk in it and realize it's not the way it really was. Or like a phone that stops working. Now, you could go and get rid of the phone and, and get a different phone, but actually, 
what many of us do is we do a, a factory reset. You know what I mean? And you take the phone back to how it was when it was new. It's still an aged phone, but it works now. And that's what God means when he says, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. He doesn't mean a different one, one that you've never experienced before, so much as it will be renewed. It will be new again. Like the Garden of Eden, where it all started. The Garden of Eden, which was a place where nothing was broken, where everything worked as it was supposed to work perfectly. One writer described the Garden of Eden like this. There was nothing to hide and nothing to hide from. A place where nothing has ever been broken, no chips, no dents, no scars, where everything was still whole and holy and the people worked with God. Now, do you want to go home? Do you want to go back to that new earth? Well, if you read the story from Genesis chapter 3, you'll find you can't because there's a flaming sword in the way. We can't go back to Eden. But the rest of the Bible story is about how God comes into the brokenness of the earth that is left after the fall, how God comes into the darkness and starts to promise a renewal, a new earth, a Messiah that will come in the dark ages that will bring the renewal of heaven and earth that we might get there again. The problem for Israel was when they had got back to this new place or renewed place to, to make it all better again, they found that it wasn't enough to go back because they were still the same people that did the same wrong things that got them tossed out in the first place. It's like when we moved into a nice new manse and we thought, this is great. It's not like our messy old house with all our stuff in it. And then we moved all our stuff in it and we found it looks awful much the same. But that's what happens when you move house, isn't it? But what is it to come when God starts to make everything new, including you? You know, this passage goes on to say this, be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. That's why Mary and Zechariah and the angels and Simeon all sang, and you read the beginning of the chapters of Luke, when the angel choir sang its glory, because what God was promising and what God was bringing in Jesus was just so good that you were going to celebrate and you were going to shout and you were going to yell because it was good, good, good news. You know, there are certain things in life that just are good, aren't there? I was thinking about this the other day. Um, you'll all have your, your certain thoughts and smells that just are good. I, I, I like just walking along a, a beach in the light in Fife. Just good, watching the sea. I was thinking about other things that just give me that moment of, of goodness. The smell of a log burning on a wood-burning stove. Or maybe it's the taste of chocolate or hot chocolate or coffee. You know those moments that just give you good. For a moment, they take you out of whatever is not so good, and they just thrill you. Maybe it's the Grand Canyon. Maybe it's going to some remote place in the world. Whatever it is that takes you out of it, and for that moment, you know gladness and joy. But here is what the Lord says quite clearly. Be glad and rejoice forever. 
So this is a joy that isn't just a moment where we come and say, hey, that's a good thing, or that's a wonderful thing, or I enjoyed that. This is something that deeper, it touches every part of our beings. That's what God is doing. Where those little bits of joy that we find in life, and it might be Christmas, it might be something that, that, that just touches your heart every year with it, that God is actually saying, I'm going to create something where those little bits of joy that you find just now are the whole sum of what I'm about. They are a foretaste of what I have in store for you. And he goes on to say, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. Now, here's the thing. For the Jews, when they heard Jerusalem, what did that mean? Well, it meant the city they lived in. So, it meant their neighbors, it meant their family, and it meant the people they worshiped with. They are a joy. Are your family a delight and a joy? Are your neighbors a delight and a joy? Are the folk you worship with a delight and a joy? And then if you're nodding and saying yes, let me ask you this, forever and always? I doubt it. <laughs> Probably every one of them drives you completely insane. But what about this? What if the best times you'd spent with your family, the best times you'd had with your neighbors, the best, most supportive relationships you'd ever found in a church in the whole of your life were actually pointers to what we're talking about? They were that continually and always. That is what God is about. So, the fire, the beauty, the chocolate, those experiences, or the people and the time together all begin to point to this new creation that God is promising in Jesus. And God goes on to say in this passage, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. Here's the thing. When God made the pristine new world at the beginning, He looked at it and He said, it is good. And here is God saying, I am going to create something out of my people and out of their experience that I will look at and I will take delight in. I will say, this is double plus good. This is even better. That is the hope that makes us sing. And if you go on in this passage, you'll find more than that. It, it promises so much, and we don't have time to go into it at all, but it, it talks about a time where there will be no weeping and there will be no crying. The two examples that are given here is of infant mortality and people dying premature deaths. That's one of the shadows of our existence today, isn't it? Those are the sort of things that even when we say life is good, we are aware of the shadow of death that is always there. And here God is saying, it will be like children are healthy, and everybody lives to 100. Now, today, we don't think much of living to 100. Lots of people do it. My, my grand died this year at 99, and we think, well, gosh, I, 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 some folk go on even longer than that, maybe folk here. But in ancient cultures, not only was infant mortality very high, if you got through childhood, your life expectancy was probably about 35 to 40. So when it said you'll live to 100, what it really meant was the thresholds of death are, are, are thrown right out. This is not saying that there will be death in, in heaven and you'll live to 100 because it starts off saying there will be no weeping and there will be no crying. 
It's saying, if you think of the fears that you have in the world, what God is going to do in this new creation is eliminate all of them so that those things will not be there anymore. And then he goes on to talk about justice. See, here's the biggest problem that the Israelites had had in this experience. They'd lived in Jerusalem. They'd spent time, as people do, making nice houses to live in. But then the houses had been taken by the Babylonians. They'd planted vineyards, and vineyards take a long time to bring a harvest. So they'd invested in their future, and then their future had been stolen by the Babylonians. And here is what God is saying here. These things represent not just an injustice, although there are an injustice, they represent an insecurity. You know, when you look at your whole future, and you want to make plans, and you want to do something, and you think, but what's the point? Because there's no security. Something may happen to my health, something may happen to my country, a cost of living crisis, redundancy, a steelworks close, all sorts of things that leave me insecure and panicking in an unjust world. What about a world where there was no redundancy, there were no evictions, there were no repossessions, there were no bankruptcies, there was no poverty, that there would be total security? You see, here is the other side of that. It goes on to talk about they will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. You see, for our own lives, we look at our kids and we want better for them, don't we? However your life's being, you either want the same for your children or better, materially, spiritually, socially, emotionally. But that's optimism. But for many people, and for even for us, there's no security that things will be better and better and better. But here is God saying, what if those aspirations of your heart that things would be secure and better were met, were guaranteed, that there was no fear, that there was no survival of the fittest, that there was no weakest to the wall, that there was no injustice, that there was no pain, that there was no homelessness, that you weren't going to walk down the street and see someone whose life had been destroyed because someone else was making good. That is the world that I'm making. And this new earth, this new heaven, is all about the relationship to God. A day where Jesus comes, and it says in the Revelation, in its version of this, that God will dwell among His people and they will have a perfect relationship with Him. Because that's the spiritual side of it. Even as Christians, people who pray, sometimes do you know what it's like when you pray and it doesn't seem there's any answer? Or you wonder about God's love for you? Or there just seems that big distance. Yes, you know Jesus died for you and you're loved, but it doesn't feel that way. What would it be to have a sort of relationship with God where you knew His presence all the time, where He anticipated your needs, where He was there and you felt it? And that is what this new heaven and this new earth is promising. That is why the Savior came. That is the hope and expectation that Christians have. Did you know this? There are no ministers in heaven. There are no priests. And there are no churches. Now, that's not because all the ministers went to hell. Or the priests. It's because we won't need things to keep us close to God. We won't need a preacher 
to bring God's Word to us because we will know His presence perfectly. And that's the Christian hope. So when we do our religion, when we do all these things, they are foretastes. You know, when you come to church, and, and sometimes you've maybe sat in a, in a church service, maybe it's been here, maybe it's been somewhere else, and you've just tasted heaven. Have you, have you had that experience in worship where you've just felt so close to God? And it might be years ago you're looking back to. But here is what this is saying. Those little things aren't little bits of escapism. They're little foretastes of what is supposed to be forever and always and in everything. See, you can have hope in good things in life that escape you from the reality or take you back to some sort of rose-tinted past. But what if all the good things in the world today that we experience are actually foretastes of the future? They are God saying, I'm going to give you and show you something of the good right now because that's what I want for you eternally and forever when everything works and everything is new. Suddenly, that transforms everything. I, I love the last part of this, this, this quite briefly, this uh, passage from Isaiah. I, I could preach about nine sermons on it, and there's bits of it I was going, I don't know what that means. But let me just give you this image. The lion will eat straw like an ox. It's a vegetarian lion. Has everyone, anyone ever met a vegetarian lion? I, I, it reminds me of a, 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 an old joke about the missionary that was in deepest Africa, and uh, as he, he was wandering through the jungle, he comes across a lion, and the lion starts to chase a big, ferocious, horrible lion chasing him through, through, through the woods, and, the, and the, the, the jungle, and the missionary is running for his life, and he's praying as he does it, Lord, save me from the lion. Lord, let the lion stop. Lord, Lord, Lord make the lion a Christian. And at that point, he looks back, and the lion's just sitting there with its paws together. And the missionary thinks, this is great. God's obviously done something. So he creeps back. And he begins to realize that the lion is praying. Paws together. Big teeth, head bowed. So he creeps closer to hear what the lion is praying. What has God done here? And the lion's praying, for what we are about to receive, may the Lord make us truly thankful. Now, let me give you another thought on this. Anyone got a toy lion or had a toy lion? Or your children or grandchildren had a toy lion? I meant to bring some pictures, but when I started looking at this on the internet, the number of pictures in children's books of, of, of cuddly toy lions was amazing, or cartoon lions. They're all over the place. The idea that you take a, a, a lion or a, a lion king, we Simba, you know, he's cute, you know. You take this little thing and you go, ah, oh, lovely. What is it about that? It's a predator. It's a killer. It's on the top of the food chain. And you want to make it cute and cuddle it. Why? Why would you do that? I don't get that. It's even weirder than having a snake in the house. But I wonder, 
But this is it. When you look at a lion in the wild, you see two things. You see magnificence. You see beauty. You see the pussycat of all pussycats. You see something that's furry and golden and wonderful, and the instinct to embrace it is there, but at the same time, it is terrifying and it is dangerous. And that's the world we're in just now, isn't it? A world where we look at things that are fantastic and they are all around us, but they're also deadly. What would it be if the world was a place where those things came together, where we really saw the magnificence, where we really saw the beauty, where we really saw the wonder of the world, but we didn't have to worry about global warming, where we really enjoyed what we had because we knew there was no poverty that was the downside of the things that we're doing, where we could work and build and, and enjoy our creativity, but our work wasn't condemned by being toil and being pointless and sometimes seeming to go nowhere and being frustrated. What would it be like? It's interesting when C.S. Lewis imagines the Lord Jesus Christ in his Narnia Chronicles, what does he use? A lion. A big, fearful, deadly lion. That is love. And there's something about the yearning of our hearts that we find there. You know, Christmas can be many things, but it doesn't last. The 12 days of Christmas, we can argue about whether they're the 12 days before, as some people think they are, or the 12 days after, but the season ends, doesn't it? The season of goodwill folk talk about, I'm left thinking, does that mean you don't do goodwill the rest of the year round? Happy holidays before you go back to the misery of work. What does this all mean? But what if Christmas isn't escapism? What if it isn't, isn't time out of the slog? What if it isn't hankering after the past and trying to create what was there? What if it isn't just a little time spent with family or friends? What if it's something else? What if it, like all the beauties in the joy of life, is given to us to be a pointer to the future? where suddenly it's not running away from all that's in life, it's giving a new meaning to all that's in life. That we will labor and we will work in this vineyard, that we will try to bring justice in this place. Why? Not because we can have a little bit of respite from all that's evil, but because we are breaking in and allowing and living out the vision that the Lord Jesus has given us in the promise of God that the earth itself will be renewed. Creation and relationships and religion and everything made perfect and pristine once again. And suddenly, that hope that we have isn't a hope in heaven that says to us, forget the world and forget everything and, and just look to be at a different place. Suddenly, it is a hope for the world. It is a hope for our community. It is hope for our religion. It is hope for our enjoyment. It is liberty to say that everything that we have and we enjoy is good. Because it points to, it begins, this promise that God has given in Jesus Christ that He is making a new heaven and a new earth that one day will fully break in again. 
Let that be our hope, our celebration, and our expectation this Christmas time. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for everything that we're getting ready for just now. And we do that both rejoicing and celebrating with everything that people will appreciate and give and the kindnesses that will be shown, but also with a realism to the brokenness and the pain, to the poverty and the sense of loss that we are aware of in our broken world. Let the meaning of Jesus Christ with us be real to us. Let the hope that it brings that the future is secure be, oh Lord, may it fill our vision. We pray today for those who mourn. Having hope in those prayers because of the promise of the resurrection to come. We pray for those today who know poverty and lack and worry how they're going to pay a heating bill. And we strive for justice, for we know you are a God who will bring the fullness of justice. And we ask that you would bless what we do together as a church, that in our services and our carol singing, that we might, Lord, celebrate and enjoy your love and, and each other, but we might also see this as a time to engage others with the good news of Jesus Christ. So bless us, we pray, our children as they prepare. Bless those who are here today. Bless those who have not come because it's cold and slippy underfoot. Bind us together and fill us with hope again. In Jesus' name, amen.